in the city of Philadelphia. Many of you would know, I assume, that it's called the city of brotherly love. But in the city of Philadelphia, there's a famous, very large sculpture of the word love. Probably most of you have seen pictures of this sculpture, even if you've never seen it in person in Philadelphia. The very sculpture was also placed on stamps. It is over 15 feet high, all in red, and the letters L and O are on top of the letters V and E. And although you would never realize it from the general behavior and speaking of people in our society in America today, yet it is true, I think, that everyone desires love. Many people talk about love. There are many songs about love. There's poetry about love. The word is used very freely and frequently. And yet, very few, relatively speaking, really understand the nature of true love. And therefore, this morning, we take up our study of another attribute of God, the attribute of love. And by way of review, very brief review, we have in recent weeks studied the Bible's teachings regarding other attributes of God, God's sovereignty, God's immutability or his unchangeableness, and God's goodness. And none of these studies have been exhaustive, but I hope that they have stirred you and challenged you to study your own Bibles in order to learn more about the living God so that you may also truly come to know the living God. And as we commence this morning's study, I would like to remind you of the Lord Jesus Christ's words in his high priestly prayer recorded in John 17. You don't need to turn there, but in that prayer, the Lord Jesus prayed these words, and this is life eternal, that they should know you, the only true God, and him whom you did send, even Jesus Christ. Well, in today's class, as I've said, we will examine some of the Bible's teachings regarding God's attribute of love. And again, this will not be an exhaustive study, for the Bible's teachings regarding God's attribute of love is massive. And although massive in scope, God's attribute of love is, of course, a vital and relevant subject to be studied, to be understood, and to be applied in our lives. For we live, as I've already said, in a day and culture in which there is much talk about love, but there is much ignorance, confusion, and misrepresentation of the biblical truths regarding love and regarding God and his love. To quote one contemporary Bible commentator, the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything that our culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. End quote. And I think that's sadly a fair statement, at least concerning American culture. Paraphrasing a pastor friend of mine, he said, most people today assume that if there is a God, he definitely will love them because that is, after all, God's job. And isn't that true? People if there is a God, well, of course he will love me. I mean, I'm lovable. I haven't really done too many things bad. And that's God's job. But you see how false that thinking and speaking is. J.I. Packer wrote this. It is assumed by modern people that God's love, if real, would itself take the form of unprincipled indulgence of our whims. Quoting Packer again, a loving God would never condemn me. A loving God would never want me to be unhappy. A loving God would never disapprove of my conduct. End quote. Another Christian author, 
To love, we are told by the world today, is to accept everyone and every lifestyle. God is love, the world tells us, means that God accepts everyone without reference to moral conduct. End quote. Of course, that's false. That's not biblical. Such falsehoods regarding God and love are not what the Bible teaches, as we shall see, I hope. And in addition, as we commence our study of God's attribute of love, we must understand that God's love is a manifestation of God's attribute of goodness. It is also true that God's grace, God's mercy, and God's long-suffering, for example, are manifestations of God's attribute of goodness. Goodness is like the big umbrella under which some of these other attributes uh, belong, as it were. So this reality of which I've just spoken reminds us that God's attributes cannot be separated one from another. Although we study them in this way in order to help us to understand who God is. Our Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, states the biblical truth that, it's not the Bible, but it is citing biblical truth, it states, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, without parts. Continues, of course, the confession, but I stop there. So we study God's various attributes as they are revealed in the scriptures. We do this to help us understand who God is. But as we study these attributes, we must not in our minds, we must not divide God into parts as though God is an assembled composite of various parts or attributes. He's part love, he's part good, he's part holy. We should not think that way. And that's what the confession is highlighting. That's what I'm trying to help us to understand this morning. It's very challenging, but it's very important. God is not an assembly, a composite of various parts or attributes. In other words, as one theologian has correctly observed, put on your thinking caps early this morning, brethren. God's essence is not simply a bundle of contiguous properties or attributes, each existing alongside the others as an integrated whole. His divinity is not a sublime set of great-making properties, all splendidly arranged together in him. In his essence, it is not one thing to be good, and another to be wise, another to be powerful, and so on. Rather, the reality in virtue of which all these things are truly said of God is nothing but his own simple divinity. Each attribute in its distinction from all others enables us to glimpse a sliver, a sliver of the perfect fullness of God's being, end quote. I know that was challenging, challenging for me, but what the author is trying to help us understand is, again, we shouldn't think that God is somehow on some days he's holy and other days he's really very good or there's his arm, as it were, is goodness and his other arm is, as it were, uh, righteousness. And we're not to think of God in parts. God is and always will be perfectly holy. God is and always will be perfectly good. 
God is and always will be perfectly love, you see. He is thoroughly all of those realities. And it should be mind-boggling for us because, of course, he is God. And we are creatures, creatures of the dust. And we are not only creatures of the dust, we are sinners. And even if you are a redeemed Christian, you have much in the way of remaining sin and corruption. But you see how we are as Christians to exercise our minds. Because as we think, so we will be. If you think of God in a wrong, false, unbiblical way, that will affect the way you live. And as challenging as it is to us in our minds, we need to remember that what we learn through our minds by God's Spirit then does affect our affections. Do you want to love God more? Then you need to understand, at least in a small way, who he is, how he has revealed himself in the word of God, the Bible. And when it's challenging, we need to press through those challenges to expand our minds and our hearts, our understanding, so that we will truly know God as Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, and that we will then love him all the more. So they are mind-stretching truths. But let us not draw back from studying the scriptures and their teachings regarding the being and attributes of God, but let us dive into daily reading, studying, absorbing, and believing God's word and God's revelation of himself. So this morning, the reality of God's love. First of all, God's essential being. God's essential being. Turn now in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is begotten of God and knows God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. Now drop down in chapter 4 of 1 John to verse 18. Verse 18. And we know and have believed the love which God has in us. God is love. And he that abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Now notice what the Apostle John wrote in verses 8 and 18. God is love. The English is clear. It's clear in the original language as well. John does not state that God is loving in these verses, although that is true, of course. John's focus is upon the very essence of God's being. God is love. God's nature, his being, his character, his essence is love. This reality of love in the being of God is clearly revealed in various scriptures which speak also of the intra-Trinitarian love, love within God himself. So turn now to John chapter 3 and verse 35. John chapter 3 and verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Of course, those are the words of the Lord Jesus. And he is revealing to us that God the Father loves him. God the Father loves the Son. And then in John 14, please turn there, verse 31. John 14, verse 31. John 
but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. So it's the Lord Jesus speaking again. Now he's speaking that he, the Son, loves the Father. I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. So what we need to understand from our Bibles is that God himself within the Trinity loves himself. That's not selfishness. You must put that away. I'm not going to try to expand on that, but it is reality. For God to not love himself would actually be wrong. But within the Trinity, you see, there is this love. And it reminds us, or it should remind us, should teach us that, you see, God did not need you or me in order to manifest his love. God was independently, if I may use the word happy, independently blessed and happy in himself before and without creating anything. He doesn't really need me. And he doesn't really need you. God did not need to create to manifest his love. God is love, you see. He is love in his entirety. Now that raises some challenging thoughts at times. I'm not going to say what those are. You can probably think of some on your own. But what we see here in John 3.35 and John 14.31 is that God the Father loves the Son. God the Son loves God the Father. And though it's not stated, I believe you could say the same of God the Holy Spirit. Professor John Murray, and I say comments as I'm going to say because I realize many would not have any idea who this man was. Professor John Murray taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia from 1930 to 1966 and was a brilliant theologian and Christian. And he wrote this, there was an infinitude of reciprocal love within the Godhead. Now just stop and think about that. Infinity. There was an infinitude of reciprocal love within the Godhead, a love not constrained by ignorance, nor quenched by knowledge, but love drawn out by exclusive and exhaustive knowledge. In other words, the triune God is love in his very being or nature, and in grace, God chose to manifest his love in this world and to this world in countless ways. Before the fall into sin, Adam and Eve experienced the reality of love from the triune God. The triune God poured out his love to Adam and Eve in clear and numerous ways before the fall. After the fall, the triune God continued to manifest his love to Adam and Eve. And as one reads through the entire Old Testament, God's love is demonstrated again and again. The idea that some people have wrongly that the New Testament shows the God of love and the Old Testament does not show the God of love, that's nonsense. So God manifested his love again and again throughout the Old Testament. The ultimate display, of course, and demonstration of God's love is seen in the New Testament in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we must understand as we study the attribute of God's love is that this is God's essential being. God is love. Now, you may be sitting there and say, well, this is wonderful theology for the head, but how does it affect my heart and life? Well, let's move forward. Hopefully you'll see this. But let's look a little more carefully at what the Bible teaches about the character of God's love. The character of God's love in the second place. First of all, God's love is independent. I've already really referred to this. There is nothing whatsoever in any human 
that calls for or demands or requires God's love to be manifested to them. In fact, everything in fallen men, women, boys, and girls calls, demands, and requires the outpouring of God's righteous wrath. And therefore, when God loves, he does so freely, and he is not prompted to love because of anything within the creatures. There's nothing in you or me that has prompted God to pour out love to you. Even in the case of unfallen Adam and Eve, God did not behold them in their sinlessness and love them because they were sinless. God set his love upon them because God independently and sovereignly chose to do so. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. For you are a holy people unto Jehovah your God. Jehovah your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession above all peoples that are upon the face of the earth. Jehovah did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because Jehovah loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore unto your fathers, has Jehovah brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And there we stop the reading of the passage. So you see here in this passage, God was not constrained to love the people of Israel by anything outside of himself, least of all by anything in the Israelites themselves. God did not initiate and choose to set his love upon the Israelites because they were a great and numerous people worthy of his attention. No, they were actually insignificant nobodies and few in number. And jumping forward now just momentarily to Paul's words to the Corinthians, telling those Corinthians why they were Christians, why they were saved, he said, God did not choose you because you were the mighty of the earth. God did not choose you because you were the great intellectuals of the earth. God chose you because you were nobodies. So if you feel yourself to be a nobody this morning, as honestly I often do of myself, and I am a nobody, you should be rejoicing. God actually chooses to set his love upon the nobodies. Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God chooses the weak things the things that are nothing, to put his love upon them. And so we see that here in Deuteronomy 7. God did not choose the Israelites because they were numerous and great. No, they were nobodies and few in number. God did not set his love upon the Israelites because they were useful to God. They were, at this point in the history, former slaves whom God had delivered from Egypt. And nor did God set his love upon them because they were a righteous people. In fact, when you read their, their history, as you well know, probably, they were often stiff-necked and rebellious. The love of God is free. Not free as far as the cost of redemption, but it is free, spontaneous, uncaused, independent, uninfluenced, and when you think about that, when you really understand, or at least begin to understand it, it should humble you. What do you have to be proud of? What do you have to be proud of? It should humble you that God has taken notice of you and saved you from your sins. 
The love of God is free, spontaneous, uncaused. It is independent. But secondly, another characteristic of God's love, it is eternal. Turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90 and verse 2. A psalm of Moses, Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And there we stop the reading. Here Moses reveals to us, God does through Moses, God is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. God had no beginning. God has no ending. God is the eternal everlasting God. And therefore, God's love, remember, God is love. We shouldn't separate out God into numerous parts. God, therefore, is in his love Eternal. God's love is eternal, as God himself is eternal. Turn now to Jeremiah 31 and verse 3. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Jehovah appeared of old unto me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. And there we stop the reading. My point in this text is for us to see, regardless of who the you is in this verse, God reveals here, I've loved you with what kind of love? It is an everlasting love. And commenting on this passage, Derek Kidner writes, it is not any merit in those that are beloved that has begun and will carry forward the sinner's relationship with God. No, it is not any merit that will carry them through thick and thin to its perfection. It is not them. It is God himself and his everlasting love. It is because God's love for his chosen ones is both independent and eternal. Believers can rest and rejoice and trust in God, their Savior, through the Lord Jesus Christ. But now turn to a New Testament passage, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Again, focusing on this aspect of God's love, that it is not only independent, it is eternal. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love having predestinated us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And there we stop our reading. So before the foundation of the world, before it was ever established by God at creation, God chose to love and to save a multitude of specific sinners. God's love for his elect is from everlasting to everlasting. God's love for his, his elect began, if I may use such time-regulated words, God's love for his elect began in eternity past and stretches into eternity future. His love will never cease and never fail for his people, his elect ones. So if you are a Christian here this morning, you need to think on these truths from your Bibles. You need to speak to yourself, preach to yourself, remind yourself that I have been loved, not for any good within me, not for any good that I might one day do, not for what I will one day be in heaven and glory. 
but I was chosen by God when I was yet ungodly and a sinner before the foundation of the world. And God chose to set his love upon me and his love is an everlasting love. But now thirdly, God's love is infinite. And I've already mentioned this, but we'll look at it more carefully. God's love is infinite. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inward man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, to the end that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be strong to apprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled unto all the fullness of God. There we stop the reading. So notice especially in verse 18, note how Paul prayed for the believers in the church in Ephesus. And remember his prayer was not the prayer of a fool. When you read this prayer that Paul penned here, that he said he prayed, no doubt regularly, for many, including the Christians in Ephesus. He was not praying foolishly. Paul prayed that these Christians would apprehend, grab a hold of some truth. He prayed that they would know, understand, but also know in an experiential way the love of Christ. You see that there in verse 18. He prayed that they would be strong to apprehend, not just as individuals, but with all the saints, what? The love of Christ, that they would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, to the end that they would be filled unto all the fullness of God. It's an amazing prayer. So Paul prayed for an increasing experimental knowledge of Christ's love, because it is not unknowable, it is knowable. But Paul recognized also that finite souls can never possess an exhaustive knowledge of infinite love. So we are to pray that God would help us to actually know with our understanding and know with our hearts and experience the reality of the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. So the passing knowledge there, I believe Paul means for us to understand, we will never fully comprehend that love of Jesus Christ. And even in glory, when you are no longer tainted with any sin, are perfectly glorified in soul and body, redeemed forever in heaven, even then without sin, you will never ever be able to truly, fully know all of the love of Jesus Christ because it is an infinite love. So Paul recognized that finite souls can never possess an exhaustive knowledge of an infinite love. And he expresses in verse 18, their surpassing infinite magnitude and therefore the unmeasurable the unquantifiable love of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this it is really very mind-boggling. One Bible commentator endeavored to grasp this, this reality of the infinite magnitude of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ with these words. Here I quote him. The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, Remember John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. So the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. He wasn't saying that all will be saved. 
The love of Christ is long enough to last for eternity. The love of Christ is deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. That should really encourage everyone here. If you understand even a little bit of the reality of your own sin, the sin of pride, the sin of arrogance, the sin of selfishness, the sin of self-will, the sin of covetousness, you begin to see the truth of how ugly your sins are. What a wonderful truth that the love of Christ is deep enough to reach to the most degraded sinner. And there's therefore no one who is, should be hopeless. You may feel hopeless at times. Christians can at times feel hopeless. Sinners who are not Christians, if they're starting to understand their sin, they may feel hopeless. But you see, with Christ, there is hope. And it's not a wispy hope like smoke in the air. It's not a shallow hope like a little pond of water on the sidewalk. No, it is broad, it is deep. And Paul continues in this commentator, it is high enough to exalt the believer to heaven. The love of God in Jesus Christ. So we are to think and meditate upon this truth regarding the immeasurable greatness, the infinitude of the love of Christ and its endless depths for you, the believing sinner, for you, the Christian. God's infinite love for the Christian is like an ever-rising ocean which rises higher than all of that believer's present troubles. As in the days of Noah, when the ark was lifted up by the floodwaters and all of the highest mountain peaks were covered over by the waters, so is the love of God, not in a destructive way as the flood was, but in that kind of a picture, the love of God in Jesus Christ for you, the Christian, is like an ever-rising ocean which rises higher and higher and covers over all of your troubles in this life. We need to be more heavenly-minded we need to think of these realities. It puts all of our real, very real troubles and problems and struggles here in this earth. It puts them all in their proper place and perspective. But fourthly, God's love is sovereign. Turn to Ephesians 1 and verse 3. We've already been there. Let's turn again to Ephesians 1 and verse 3. God's love is sovereign. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before him, in love having predestinated us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. You see those two phrases that I've emphasized in this passage. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, according to the good pleasure of his will. Since God is love in his very being, and since God is sovereign over all, he is, of course, under no obligation to anyone, let alone obligated to save anyone. But it follows because God is sovereign, 
His love is also a sovereign love, and we see that in Ephesians 1. Those whom God pardons for their sins and delivers from their sins and brings to glory are those whom God has chosen sovereignly to save. And this sovereign choice was made before the foundation of the earth. So it has nothing to do with anything in yourself. The sovereign choice was made according to the good pleasure of his will, not because of anything in you, the creature or the sinner. And again, when you grasp that, that should give you great comfort. I am a Christian by the grace of God, because God sovereignly chose to save me, sinful and unworthy though I am. God's love is sovereign. Fifthly, God's love is immutable. Turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. God's love is immutable. Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Even as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There we stop the reading. So nothing and no one can separate the Christian from the love of God, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wrote. Why? Why is that so? Is that so because of God's omnipotence? The answer is yes. God is omnipotent. God will keep you. No one will snatch you out of God's hand. But is it because of God's faithfulness? Yes, God is faithful to his word, and what he begins he will complete. But it is also, according to this passage, because of God's steadfast, unchanging love for his children. God's unchanging love for his people, those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins, God's unchanging love for his people guarantees that he will continue to love them. God is not fickle like you and me. God never grows tired and weary of loving his chosen ones. The sinner who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of his sins can rest in this truth, that God's love is immutable. God never abandons utterly his believing child. Yes, the Bible does teach that God does at times for good and wise reasons, and sometimes not at all discerned by the believing sinner, the Christian. God does at times chasten and temporarily leave that believer in darkness God does do that, but he never even then has forsaken the believer. He is using that dark providence to teach that believer about the reality of God's unchanging, immutable love. God uses such seasons to do that, to underscore this marvelous reality that God never utterly abandons his believing child. His love for each of his elect is unchangeable, immutable. Turn to John 13 and verse 1. 
The love of the disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ was certainly changeable. Up and down, hot and cold. We see that in Peter. We see it in Thomas. We see it, no doubt, in others, perhaps Philip, probably all of them. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them unto the end, or to the uttermost, you see. He did not give up on Peter. He did not give up on Thomas. He did not give up on Philip. He did not give up on James and John. He did not give up on any of his disciples because his love is unchangeable. He loved them unto the end, to the uttermost. But now, sixthly, God's love is gracious. Turn to John 3, verse 16. You all know this verse. You didn't really need to turn there, I suppose. But still to see it afresh. John 3, 16. God's love is gracious. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. And verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. So, brethren, notice here this reality that God's love is gracious. God truly, sincerely has a love for the people of this world. And I understand there's a difference between his sovereign electing love as well as his love and common grace, I understand. But let's not pull out of verse 16 what it does say. God did sincerely love the world, and so much so that he gave his only begotten Son. To what end? That whosoever, notice that wonderful word, Whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. That word means that every single one of us in this auditorium, we qualify for the salvation of God, not only as sinners, but because God sent his son into the world that whosoever believes on him should not perish. That includes every single one of you. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you will not perish but have eternal life. Why? Because you've earned it? No, because God is gracious in saving sinners. We say salvation is all of grace, and that's correct. But do we think about what we're saying? It is a gracious salvation. God's love is gracious. And in verse 17, he sent his son into the world that the world should be saved through him. And surely God's love is revealed in the incarnation of the Son of God. Turn now to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. First John 4 verse 9. Herein was the love of God manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Just looking at verse 9, you should realize this verse is speaking about the incarnation of the Son of God. God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Why did God do that? John tells us here, this was a manifestation of the love of God, that he sent the son of God into this world to save sinners. And notice in verse 10 of 1 John chapter 4, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for 
our sins. So Jesus Christ was in this world as the Son of God, the Son of Man, truly God, truly man. He came in order to rescue hell-deserving, helpless, hopeless sinners to save them from their sins. And he did so by dying on the cross as the propitiation for the sins of everyone who believes in him alone. And what is a propitiation? A sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God. A propitiation is a sacrifice that then pays for all of those sins of those who trust in Christ alone. So, brethren, you see from these verses, God's love is a gracious love for sinners. So at this Christmas season, remember these realities. And as you have opportunity, speak of the truth of the love of God in Jesus Christ to sinners all about you. But then, especially if you're a believer, bring it home to your own heart with freshness. This reality of God is love and God does love sinners. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would take these biblical truths and write them upon our minds and hearts. And we ask that by the work of your Holy Spirit, they would be used by you to change us, to sanctify us, to change us in our thinking where our thinking is unbiblical and wrong, to change us in our hearts where our affections are unbiblical and wrong, to change us and make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that the realities of your love would overwhelm each and every one of your believing people, that we would all the more love the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that this reality of the gospel would be proclaimed by us to unconverted friends and relatives all around us. Lord, come, even during this Christmas season, and use your gospel to save sinners. We ask for these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.